Uh, if you have your Bible, go ahead and grab your Bible. If you don't own a Bible, we have Bibles in the back. Uh, please take one before you leave. It's our gift to you. We love to just look at the Bible, look at the scriptures, and, and see all that God would teach us. Um, and uh, here's what I want to tell us. Just go to Luke chapter 16. Luke 16 is where we're going to be. Here's what um, I just wanted to encourage us all in and remind us of as we, as we hit the ground running uh, to finish Luke 16. We actually are looking to finish Luke in Easter, uh, not Easter 2020, as some have joked about, Easter 2017 this year uh, coming up, so it'll be great to, to land in, in Luke 24 uh, to finish out this wonderful series. I don't know what book we're doing next, but God will tell me soon. So, um, But just wanted to remind us, um, one of the things that we believe, one of our commitments is that we just kind of plow through books of the Bible. We trust that wherever we land, whatever given day, that's what God wants to say. So rarely we'll take um, some topical uh, kind of times like we did Rhythms of Worship. You know, we took five weeks and walked through that. And then other times we'll just uh, keep picking up where we leave off in that book, going through line by line, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, so we can see what we know as the full counsel of God. You'll see um, the apostles praise the New Testament that they would preach the full counsel of God so that no blood was left on anyone's hands. And so um, here's the thing. I know coming in after Thanksgiving, uh, you had a great time with family. You probably went around the table giving thanks. You had a great big meal. The last thing you want this morning is thinking, man, I can't wait for Pastor Mike to preach on hell. Uh, but that's where we are in the text. So um, we're going to roll with it. We're going to walk through it. We're going to look at it. And, and listen, this is nothing new. This is nothing new to our church because we've been looking at Jesus for almost two and a half years in this wonderful book. And he talks about hell more than heaven. He addresses life, eternity, punishment, all of those things, what happens when we die, what, how we can avoid those things when we die. Um, he speaks about it in a very loving, humble, gracious, kind way. Now, a lot of people say, well, gosh, I mean, if, if Jesus is really who you say is, if Jesus is really loving, then he can't believe in hell and he can't teach about hell. Well, um, we actually believe that because Jesus is the most humble, loving, compassionate, truth-telling man to ever walk the planet, that if he's going to talk about it, then our sin must be way more serious than we could ever imagine if the most loving man can speak in such stark of terms. Okay, so we believe that truth is to liberate us. Truth is to lead us into deeper life. So all we have to do is look at it, read it, lay before us, and let it do its work. So uh, we don't fear that here. Uh, we don't fear talking about the things that Jesus would talk about because if he talks about them, then we need to talk about them because we trust him. So let's ask God to, to help us maybe just for, for one minute. God, thank you that your word is true. Thank you that all that you say leads to life and leads to freedom and not enslavement. God, help us to receive the truths that you would say. God, thank you for the Holy Spirit of God that illuminates minds and illuminates hearts. Would you do what only you can do? We need your help to understand. We need your help to hear. We need your help to listen. We need your help to walk in conviction. And most profoundly, we need your help to be transformed. For we can't leave and make ourselves new. God, would you continue to shape those of us who are saints, who are yours, more in the image of Jesus, and would you save some this morning who are not and make them yours, make them in your family, make them a child of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so uh, we're in Luke chapter 16. Um, and we have a lot to cover, and I, so I just want to uh, start by just reading a verse um, that'll just kind of help kind of set the tone for what Jesus is going to do. Jesus is actually going to tell a parable uh, this morning, which is basically, we've been seeing him tell a lot of parables. If you're new to the Bible or new to Christianity, a parable is just basically a story to illustrate a theological truth or a theological point, okay? So Jesus does this often. He does this um, often in his ministry. But first, I want to just see one verse in Romans 11, verse 22. It simply says this, note then... Okay, so take note of it, pay attention to, he says, the kindness 
and the severity of God. Now, I, I think all of us in this room can totally get the kindness of God, right? I mean, there's no one in this room that's going, man, we love to celebrate his love, his beauty, his grace, his forgiveness, his mercy. There's no one that doesn't say, hey, I can't grab a hold of that. I, I want that, right? We all long for that. We all want to see that, this unconditional covenant love that Jesus extends, right, regardless of our sin. If we repent and turn to Christ and lean into him and follow him and die to ourselves and embrace him as Lord, Master, Savior, God, King, ruler, hey, right, we get, we get all those benefits through the massive love that is absolutely poured out in the cross of Jesus Christ. But, but here's the other thing. He doesn't say just to note the kindness of God. He says also note the severity of God, right? So now I think we love noting the kindness of God, but as soon as you get to the severity of God, things get really weird out there. So you've got messages to conferences to books to classes to the cultural narrative that'll all say Jesus just gives you hugs. He never warns anybody. He never judges anybody. He never punishes anybody. So we've got this real, real weird kind of Christianity that forms in American Christianity where we kind of avoid the severity, love the kindness, and we only celebrate one. We take love as his attribute and say that's it. That's his only attribute. Well, he's got many. He's got an infinite number of attributes that are all perfect because he's God and they all operate in a way that is perfect because he is God and so what happens is if you walk in this understand that's not loving or kind right I mean just like it's not loving or kind for you not to warn your son or daughter of the dangers of the pool or of touching the stove or of touching the corner of the street or walking out in front of cars or going in the knife drawer I mean with Jackson we do this all the time right he's just a walking time bomb like around our house so we have to constantly warn him of dangers right so it's not loving in the same way. It's not loving for Jesus not to warn and lay before us the realities of what's to come apart from Christ. And so he does that because he cares. And so the danger in all this is if you couple that with a lot of modern theology that is Jesus floating around in a cloud, not ever angry, what does that do? It produces no awe, no worship, and no real gratitude for the depth of what the cross has secured and ransomed you from. And so here Jesus tells this story, a parable primarily addressing the religious who don't understand that their self-righteous ways, that their obedience to the law alone is not what will ultimately save them. He's trying to warn them, hey, this is gonna be your place of eternity if you don't trust in Jesus as the Messiah. So here he goes in Luke chapter 16, verse 19. He says this, he says, he tells this parable. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Okay, so we've got two simple men in the story, and Jesus usually actually hardly ever gives any names in parables, but he does give one name to a particular man, and that's Lazarus. Okay, Lazarus is the poor man, and there's also a rich man. We don't know his name, but it's a story, so he's just providing details. And Lazarus is a poor man. His name means God comforts or God helps. And there's a rich man who's wealthy. We know he's wealthy, one, because Jesus says he was rich, but also because he wore purple. Purple is the most expensive dye of the day. Uh, when you wore robes that, ex that basically exemplified your wealth, he eats buffet meals every day. He's got a private chef. He's living the life. He is wealthy. Then you've got this total opposite kind of uh, paradox here with Lazarus, who um, is a poor man who does not dress in luxury, does not eat in luxury. He's actually ill, crippled, hungry, destitute, actually waiting outside the gate of this estate that the rich man owns, just begging for food, just wanting something. Now, the religious leaders of the day uh, would have considered Lazarus cursed of God, right? Because we've been seeing this throughout the book of Luke, that, that if you loved God and God loved you, then you were healthy, not sick, and you were wealthy, not poor. 
So surely they thought, Lazarus, man, this guy's cursed of God. This guy doesn't love God. We're going to see he actually did love God because he is taken to heaven. And Lazarus is outside the gate of the rich man hoping for food. Uh, understand, in the ancient Near East, there were no knives, forks, napkins. So actually what they would do, especially the wealthy houses, uh, they would eat meals and then they would wipe their hands, clean their hands on hunks of bread and then throw them out to the trash. Those are actually probably the, the things that Lazarus was waiting for. So not only just food, but food had, that had been used to clean the hands of people that they threw outside to the trash. You can see just the, the desperation of this man and the poorness of this man. And Jesus implies that the rich man offered no help to Lazarus's misery. He clearly implies that there's no heart for him, no love for him, no awareness of him. I'm self-indulgent, I'm self-absorbed, I'm gonna keep doing what I wanna do. I'm gonna live the life of luxury that I have, completely unaware of what is before him, what is the end for him. And so he's really a... I really believe that he's a figure of self-indulgence, this rich man, because actually if you go to, to ancient Near East in this time and place, it was very common for people to work toil for almost six days of the week and maybe eat one good meal a week, one solid meal. So this man that's doing it every day is just a figure of self-indulgence. So the sin of the rich man is not at all his dress or his diet. It's his self-absorption. It's his fundamental sin of the universe we talk about all the time. I am God. I want what I need. I want what's for me. I don't care about anybody else. And I will live my life according to my principles and my desires and not what God would have me do or say, right? And so you see this rich man just living in self-indulgence, self-absorption. In verse 22, we're going to see a quick shift in scenery. Verse 22, the poor man dies and was carried to the angel's to Abraham's side, that's Lazarus. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades was being in torment. And as he was being in torment, he lifted his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Okay, so you have one man who spends his whole life on what he'll wear and eat, and another man who just wanted to do whatever he could to survive and eat, okay? And here's the thing. Both of them get the same end as far as death, right? Now, I always say this. There there are a few things in life that are hard charging 100% for all of us. One is death, okay? So no matter if you're rich, poor, left, right, conservative, Republican, Democrat, no matter what your ethnicity is, no matter how long you live, the moment you are born into this world, you're on borrowed time, and no one decides when their life is going to end. We saw this in Luke chapter 13. Jesus was really clear, hey, you you don't need to worry about what other people do and what other people think and their sins or your sins. You need to worry about you. You need to repent because you never know when death is coming for you. And so here you see Jesus show this parable that both men ultimately died, right? That's the, the universal theme of this present life. All will perish temporally, all of us regardless of your income, regardless of where you live, and we can put band-aids on that reality through our money, through our income, through our wants, through our trinkets and treasures, but the reality is one day we can't take any of it with us. And all that goes with us is our soul and our spirit, either secured with God in Christ or to be cast away from him forever in eternal torment and anguish. That's weighty. You're seeing it right here in the text, the inevitable comes to both of them, death. And there is an immediate scene change where you see Lazarus taken to glory and he is not crippled, he is not hungry, he is not desperate, he's anything but that. He is dining with Abraham, feasting. He is in paradise. He is leaning into his side. And then you have 
the opposite of a man who had all he could ever want, all he could ever have, in anguish, in torment, begging for a drop of water. We're going to see this. So rich and poor saints meet in heaven, right? Lazarus is carried to the side of Abraham. This signifies he's the father of the faith. He's with the faithful. He's with the saints. He is surely blessed. He is not cursed. Clearly the theology of the religious leaders is off because if the theology is correct, Jesus would say, well, this man is in torment and anguish. And the rich man should be in heaven in Abraham's side. But neither of those are true and he finds himself in Hades or hell in torment and anguish. Take, take note of these words that Jesus uses. Jesus never like slips up on words. Like when he tells a parable, like every word matters. And he uses those two words because he uses those two words often throughout the scriptures and throughout his ministry. If you go back to Matthew chapter three, it'll be on the screen. John the Baptist comes. We saw in Luke chapter three, right? John the Baptist entered the scene. He's the forerunner for Jesus, preaching a repentance for forgiveness of sin. He warns the religious leaders, hey, you know, who warned you of the wrath to come? In other words, he's reminding them, hey, you can't appeal to your lineage or your Jewishness to save you. It's repentance. It's not birth. It's rebirth that actually makes you one in Christ. And notice here, John the Baptist unpacks God's response to us being glory thieves, us wanting what God has and not being him. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who's coming after me, that's Jesus, is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Again, he's still talking about Jesus. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is your boy Jesus who's coming to do this. And, and here's something to understand. The Old Testament, you basically have the whole universe is just God's threshing floor. And here what it's saying is the repentant, those that love Jesus, those who trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sin, right, to, to accomplish what they can never accomplish, right? If, if we lean into him, he's gonna come, he's gonna gather, right, all the valuables you would gather into the barn or your wheat, your cattle, other things. The, the valuables are those who are saints, those who are believers, and those who are not the non-repentant, which is the chaff, are thrown into unquenchable fire. Now, that word that he uses there is, is Gehenna, which he uses over 12 times in all four Gospels. And, and it's actually uh, what we translate into the word hell. And it's a reference to this ravine. There was this, this ravine in southern Jerusalem, and it was this horrific place. And every person in Jerusalem kind of knew about it. It was this place that was, um, had this, this, basically they had these weird like Blair Witch killings there and, and things that happened. And so it was this ravine where they would just make it a dumping ground. When it got too big, they would just light it on fire. So Jesus is saying, hey, when I'm talking about Gehenna, when I'm talking about hell, I'm talking about something you've seen and you understand where it's smoldering, where it's desolate, where it is awful, where it is frightful, where it just constantly goes up in smoke. He's using language that they understood. He's using imagery that was real to them. So hell is not figurative. It's literal. It is not hypothetical. It is actual. The scriptures will constantly and clearly say this. Verse 24, he's gonna further explain this. He calls out, this is the rich man now. Interesting, the rich man's gonna call out for mercy. The rich man who never gave a sh an ounce of mercy to Lazarus is now gonna ask for some. And he says this in verse 24, and he calls out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. 
But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all of this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. So somehow, according to Jesus, the rich man can see, whether through a window, whether through just whatever, he can, he can see what's happening, right, in, in, this, in this glorified state of Lazarus being with Abraham and all the saints and feasting, and they're in paradise. And, and you see, me. it's interesting, the rich man doesn't call out to Lazarus for mercy. He calls out to Abraham for mercy. And he calls him father. He says, Father Abraham, can you, can you come help me? Can you show me some mercy? Now, here's why this is so interesting. Um, he's appealing to his Jewishness to save him. That's why he calls him Father Abraham. That's why he looks to Father Abraham. Now, we've been seeing this. This is where you see the threads of the Bible consistently pulling together, consistently kind of measuring up. Um, not, it's not going to be on the screen, but back in chapter 3, you remember John the Baptist. We spent some time there where John the Baptist enters the scene, and he tells these same religious leaders a number of things, but one of the things he says is he's preaching repentance. He speaks to them and says, hey, don't assume because Abraham's your dad that you have eternal life. He says it's not lineage that saves you. It's not heritage that saves you. It's repentance of sin and the person and work of the Messiah that would come that saves you. Right? I mean, we, we even thought, saw in Genesis, right? I mean, Father Abraham himself, Father Abraham, the, who wasn't even, by the way, a Jew. He was a Gentile called out of a pagan nation to be used by God for God's purposes. So, so this guy Abraham, who they all call Father, he actually, right, is given and credited righteousness by faith, not by any works of his own. His faith is credited based upon the future work of Jesus. So he goes, listen, I'm reminding you again, it's not because of who you are, it's not because of the family you grew up in, it's by reason birth. It's not by birth. This is why if you read the Gospels, you'll constantly see the first century Jews shocked at how salvation happens because they all thought they were the special people alone. All the promises were only for them. It was never going to be a global thing. And so they can't believe the things that Jesus would say. And so this guy, he's showing the religious leaders, he's appealing to his Jewishness in the parable to be saved. Now some of us can really relate because you base your salvation upon your parents being saved, your grandparents being saved, the fact that your family all travels to church in the morning, well that does not secure you in anything. It is you being confronted with God, you seeing the glory of God, the infinite perfections that are in his name and renown, and you bending your knee and repenting of sin and turning to him as Savior God, King, Lord, Ransomer of your soul. Oh, brothers and sisters, do not depend on somebody else to be your salvation. Do not live vicariously through somebody else. I see that all the time, too. Maybe you're meeting with somebody, and you love meeting with them, not because you're being convicted of sin, not because you're being led into life, but because you love being taught by them and listening to them. Maybe you come in just because you love hearing a sermon, and that, that's great, but just hearing a sermon is not going to transform your soul. Just hearing a sermon is not going to take you from darkness to light. Just hearing a sermon is not going to take you from anguish and eternal torment and hell in the future to eternal bliss and paradise. You have to be confronted with the reality of where you stand before a holy, righteous God. And then you say yes to Jesus or no to him. But it is for you. It is not based upon what people give to you through what you are born. Spiritual rebirth is how salvation happens. We saw this scorn from them last week, right? 
We saw this consistency going. They basically, because Jesus rolled out the parable, uh, he gave the stewardship, the, the bad manager, and then he rolls into the law last week. And the whole time they're basically saying, man, don't tell us what to do with our money. Like, we're secure. We're people of Abraham. Like, we're good. Don't tell us how to spend or not spend. This ridicule constantly comes. They think their security is in heritage and not Jesus. And that's why the rich man, if he truly was a new creation in Christ, if he truly knew God and loved God, he would not have ignored the needs of Lazarus. Because when someone's made new in in the cross of Christ, you see the world differently, you see others differently. Yet the rich man figured he had secure standing with God because of his lineage, yet there was no transformation. And this is what, brothers and sisters, I find most frightening as I read the Bible as I read through the scriptures, is that the gospels continue to attest to amidst popular vote, amidst popular opinion, that we all think, man, hell, Gehenna, this place of eternal torment, you know, that place is going to be filled with, you know, the really wicked, the vile, the outside the camp terrorists, like the really bad people. You know, it's going to be filled with religious people. Hell will be filled with religious people. They just loved the show, but they had no internal love. They had no wanting of Jesus. They had no wanting of the cross. <laughs> so it's very important to understand the sermon John preached and the parable Jesus is telling here is not to a group of outwardly wicked, crazy people. He's talking to people that show up at their community group every week. He's talking to people that show up for the sermon every week. He's talking to people that, that gather with saints. Think their attendance is recording for them a name in the book of life. When it's Salvation in Jesus alone that does that. And then he says this amazing statement, besides, a chasm's been fixed. You need to notice these things. Jesus does not say these things randomly. A chasm, meaning um, purgatory's out of the question. There's no second chances. There's no crossing over. There's no getting out of your eternal regret, the finality of death. He longs for relief, and he doesn't get any. Notice, Abraham doesn't even answer his question. Abraham doesn't even respond to it. The one who denied a crumb to Lazarus is denied a drop of water. And this is why, brothers and sisters, the New Testament will say, today is the day of salvation, right? Like, today's the day of it. Like, like, let's not wait, let's not hold off. Like, this is the most important decision you will ever make. So if if you're hearing this morning for the first time that Jesus alone dies the death you couldn't die and rescues you from eternal death into eternal life and he alone is the one who secures you through his blood shed and his body broken and his resurrection that validates it in full, man, don't don't take time to wait and consider it. He said they will lay before you constantly. Today is the day to repent. Today is the day to come to Jesus because once death happens, it's final, it's secure. There's nothing, Hebrews will say, first comes death, then comes judgment. So it's not something that we play around with. And he says there's a chasm from the presence of God that excludes the presence of God from the reality of hell. Now let me, let me tell you why this is such a big deal. Um, in the Bible, according to the scriptures, everything good, everything perfect, everything enjoyable, everything peaceful, everything hopeful is given from God, right, by God for our good and for the glory of God, for enjoyment. So what he's revealing here is that in this, in this chasm, if you're actually following this train of thought, hell, when all is said and done, is not just the absence of God, which is horrifying in itself. It's, not, it's therefore, because it's the absence of God, it's the absence of all that you know is good, all that you know is kind, 
All that you know is peaceful. All that you know is pleasurable. All that you know is lovely. All that you know is anything good. The absence completely of that. What a terrifying place. What a horrifying place. I mean, it's so bad that Jesus will say, it's a place of gnashing of teeth, a place where the worm does not die. I think one of the most frightening is Revelation 14, where he says, the smoke goes up from them eternally from their torment. Now listen, um, obviously, because of the role of being a pastor, if I'm out in Starbucks or somewhere, and as soon as somebody asks me, hey, what do you do? The next question is, either do I run or do I stay and engage because I say I'm a pastor, right? So they either run out the door or they stay and engage. And, and normally, it always goes to really two things, right? Hell or something in regards to gender. Okay, so that, that's usually the two places that the conversation goes. But whenever I talk about Hell, this is most commonly the thing that I'll, that I'll get into as we'll talk about these realities, as we'll talk about language Jesus uses. Um, one of the most popular responses to this idea of hell that Jesus is laying before us is, how in the world then could a loving God create and fill a place like hell? Right? Like, how could he do that? If he's truly a loving God, right? I believe in a God that's love. I believe if there's a core to all belief systems and all religions, that God is a God that is loving, Right? So what they're basically saying is the punishment doesn't fit the crime. It doesn't make sense. It's not fair, right? So if I just steal Skittles or tell a little white lie, I get eternal torment and punishment? Compared to the guy who who kills off millions and is a suicide bomber, and that's just not fair. And um, this is very common. Maybe some of you guys think this. Um, Or we just completely disregard the scriptures totally and the teaching of Jesus, and we move into postmodernism that says, well, God would never do something like that, Right? It's not his character. Those are common things that we say and think. Let me show you what you're doing. Um, if, if hell exists, and we don't have time to unpack the, this, this theology, but if hell exists fundamentally because we belittle the name and renown of God, because he is so mighty and infinitely beautiful and holy, we belittle that in committing idolatry and being glory thieves and wanting to steal all that is his and make it ours. This is Genesis 3 on repeat throughout Christendom, throughout redemptive history. If that's what we do, then we cannot for our own safety come up with some solution that further belittles his name. Are you, are, you, are you tracking? Because what you're doing is you're going in full circle with this. So you're going, well, the name, renown, glory of Christ must not be that big of a deal. Therefore, the punishment of eternal hell doesn't fit the crime of belittling his name. And so something else must. And therefore, even by you saying that, you're saying the punishment doesn't fit the crime. And therefore, we're running in the circle of, I'm going to respond to my own belittlement of the name, renown, and glory of Christ by belittling him further by saying, well, hell is not the right punishment. Do you see how that just continues to go in circles? So really, the glory of God is not that big of a deal. So your understanding of God, your understanding of his glory, your understanding of his majesty, your understanding of his infinite perfections revealed in the scriptures, seen in the person and work of Jesus Christ, revealed throughout creation, your understanding of that is inextricably tied to then you finding your way down to a right understanding of how horrible and terrifying hell must be. Not to show you how terrifying and horrible hell must be, but to show you how great and majestic and holy and awesome God must be. 
So the right response to the doctrine of hell that has been under attack, that has been subverted, that has been overt, that has been dismissed, that has been ignored, the right response to it is not how could God, but it's how amazing and glorious must God be if this is the right and just punishment for me, a sinner. That's where our minds need to go. That's where our hearts need to go. We need to be inflated with his beauty, not the terror of hell. And this is why I'll constantly say, listen, um, even though hell is right and just, it's still insufficient. Like, it doesn't create worshipers. Like, if you watch Judge Judy, like, for those of you like Judge Judy, like, no one praises Judge Judy when they slam the gavel and say, hey, life in prison. I love you, Judge Judy. No one wants justice. Everyone wants mercy. Right? Everybody. So, so here's the thing. Even though hell is right and just, it's insufficient and it's not going to create worshipers. Here's what I mean. You cannot scare anybody into heaven. Right? That, that's why it's insufficient in the sense of, listen, you can scare people to give. You can scare people to go to church. You can scare people to attend church. You can scare people to love their neighbor. You can scare people to do good works. You cannot scare people into loving God. You can't make people do that. You need to see something more profound and more glorious and understand something more weighty in the bottom of your soul to free you from that. And that happens by seeing and beholding the work of Jesus on his cross. This is why it's so important to understand God responds throughout the Bible to two ways to our sinfulness, right? Hell and then the killing of Jesus Christ. If you just look at how, both, how awful both are, that has to point us to how awful our sin must be. And how serious our rebellion must be. Yet God is so kind to deliver us from that. The other thing I would say is a lot of people I talk to says, I don't believe in a God who uh, punishes and judges people because, again, I believe in this God of love. There's a core to all belief systems, and it's that God is loving. Basically what that definition is saying is, I believe in a God that accepts people regardless of belief and practice. It just doesn't matter. Kind of universalism... Here's the problem. As soon as you start going down that tunnel, you start to realize you're gonna come up empty time and time again when you start looking for the centrality of a loving God like the God in the scriptures comparatively to every other belief system. Example, Buddhism. Amidst their wonderful love for selflessness and sacrifice, they believe in a God, but not in a God of love and that God is the, love is the action of that person. The Muslim faith, friends who are Muslims, they, they believe in a God that is a God of love, but it's more sacrifice, mercy, kindness. It is not a God who is intimate and loving you like a spouse, like the God of the Bible. It's not a God that shows intimate interaction with you, intimate affection for you. The love does not have sacrifice in it. And so that's why when you get to the narrative of the scriptures, right, the God of this gospel that we see in the Bible, if you start reading this, you'll see the Trinitarian God birth forth in love to creation. He creates out of love and delight. You'll see that nowhere in any other narrative. Actually, most narratives of every other pagan religion is opposing gods and forces in a power struggle and then stuff was made. You will not find it. You will not find almost anything outside of Christianity, historically orthodox in its textual form of the written scriptures. You will not see another belief system that demonstrates the trueness of a loving God. And this loving God that we only find in the Bible, the loving God you're actually looking for, is one that judges and receives and shows mercy. Because he made beauty, because he made all that is good, he cannot be right and just with anything that stands in front of that and not do something towards that. That would annihilate his very own character. 
And so here we have a God who is not like the ruling attribute of any God in any major faith. I mean, what, I love to always ask, what makes you think that this God of love is a God of love? Whatever God in theory you have in your mind, is it just looking at history? Is it looking at people groups? The reason you even have a framework for that or even desire that is because of the God of the Scriptures. The only reason you even really want that is because of the God of the Scriptures. And he's the only one who reveals himself in that way. So for someone to believe in a God of love who accepts everyone and judges no one, in my opinion, is a powerful act of faith. Powerful. Because he, by definition, could not be loving if he lets whatever goes go. Now let's keep going. Verse 27. We're going to see how this continues to unfold as he reveals this. Reveals love and kindness and also reveals justice. Verse 27, and he said, this is the rich man. Notice, he was ignored his first question, right? Can I please, can you please show me mercy or can I please have some water, right? Ignored that, so he goes, well, I guess I might as well ask something else, right? So I was denied the first one. Let me ask another response. And he says, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, then they'll repent. And Abraham said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Okay, so Abraham doesn't even respond to his first request, so he moves on to the second request, and the guy says, okay, well, fine. Um, If he wouldn't bring me any water, then can you just send somebody to go tell my brothers what this place is like? Can you please send him back to my brother's house? I have five of them. I want them to avoid this place. And here's the thing. He knew his brothers were just like him. And so he knew their end would be hell just like he was in. And so he thinks to himself, well, man, if I knew what I knew now, I would definitely have someone go tell them so that they wouldn't have to come here. Man, I would have avoided this place altogether if I had known this is what it would be like. And his conclusion is, My brothers don't have enough information about hell. That's his conclusion. You can just see it. If they really knew what it was like, then they'd be warned, and then they would avoid judgment here. Amazing. It's amazing to me that he's providing counsel from hell. Right? Hold on, hold on. I know how this whole thing works. Let me help you out. Here's how you need to counsel my brothers. Here's what you need to tell them. Here's what you need to help them. And Abraham replies with an incredible statement. Incredible statement. He says, no, they have the scriptures. The the Old Testament. They have Moses and the prophets. Alluding to they have sufficient information to know all that they need to know about life and judgment in the Old Testament. But the rich man knows that his brothers don't listen to the Bible. He knows they won't listen to the Scriptures. He knows that they've had Moses in the Old Testament. He knows they've had all the prophets. So because he knows that they still are not going to listen, look at how the rich man replies. 
They already, they already know Moses and the prophets. You gotta do something new. Hold on, I've got it. If we bring back a dead person, somebody who was here, and he goes back and he tells a man, then they'll believe, then they'll avoid judgment. Do something crazy, do like some miracle. Hey, send Lazarus back. Is this you, so used to hearing the Bible, so used to sitting under the word, that you're constantly looking for something new to revive your soul, to lead you into life, to protect you from destruction in this life and the life to come? Oh, I've heard that, I've heard that, I've heard that. Man, according to Jesus, through the voice of Abraham in this parable, the privilege they have is that they have Moses and the prophets. That's their privilege. I continue to say over and over and over again, I constantly hear people say, hey Mike, just teach me something new, wow me with something new. And I'll constantly say and go back to, listen, you growing up in godliness, you being conformed in the image of Christ, you learning and understanding what it means to love God and be known by God is you already practicing what you already know. Man, don't, don't, not this, hey, teach me something new. It's, man, keep going back to what you know. That's why Paul will say in 1 Corinthians, hey, I'm gonna keep telling you, remind you of this gospel that I keep teaching you and keep preaching to you. Man, that's how we grow up in godliness. That's how we're conformed to the image of Jesus. It's not normally some new, wow, crazy thing. It's practicing what you already know and what you already have. But we're in a culture that always wants something new. So the foolish person is quick to think they need a new method, a new method of understanding life and death besides the fundamental method God has given us for conversion and growth and godliness, which is his written word. We don't need something new. God's already appointed the means. And so the rich man, the rich man's fundamentally in hell then because he didn't listen to the scriptures, right? You just following the, the, the course progression? He's fundamentally there because he didn't listen to scriptures. And this refers to the Old Testament. Now some of you guys are going, well, well, what could they have possibly learned from the Old Testament? I mean, all that we learn about the actual blood and body of Jesus Christ is in the New Testament. Oh no, brothers and sisters, they could have learned the entire narrative of redemption in the Old Testament. They could have walked through and known about God. They would have seen him as holy. They would have seen him as creator. They would have seen him as establisher. They would have seen the original sin enter right through Father Adam. Right? They would have known that a substitute was always proclaimed and heralded to come, that there always had to be substitution for forgiveness of sin. They would have always seen that God provided a way out of judgment and a way to find forgiveness. They would have always seen that blood had to be shed and ultimately in the future land that would come to wipe away sin and to forgive us of sin. They would have looked and seen all of the Savior coming to crush the head of Satan, to provide redemption for his people, to fulfill all the promises to Israel and to the world. They, they would have read all of that right in their Old Testament. They would have been able to see all of these things. They would have seen that, that God deals with sin. They would have seen that God is holy. They would have seen that their, you know, naturalism doesn't work. We don't just cease to exist. It's clear in the Old Testament. They would have seen that universalism doesn't exist. We don't just all end up in the same place. They would have seen that reincarnation doesn't exist. You don't somehow pay off your karmatic debt. They would have seen that purgatory doesn't work. There's no second chance. Those who died, died and immediately were sent to either outside of the camp of God or inside the camp of God. They would have seen all that just by reading Moses and the prophets. And this is why Abraham leaves them to the testimony of Moses and the prophets. Because it's the ordinary means of conversion. 
It's the ordinary means of conviction. He says if they don't listen to the scriptures, they're not going to believe somebody if they rise from the dead. Now, if you remember, Jesus did raise a real man from the dead. Ironically, his name was Lazarus in John 11, right? And do you know what that did to the religious people who saw it? Did they believe? No. You know what it did? It made them grow in hatred to ultimately kill him. So the irony in the parable that Jesus is telling to the religious is, hold on a second, you want someone to come back from the dead to warn your brothers. I've already done that and it hasn't worked and ultimately it will kill me. So, so be careful that you skirt around all the tertiary issues without dealing with Jesus. We see this all the time. Well, tell me something else. Prove something else. Give me something new. They didn't see that religion won't protect you. Only Jesus protects you, covers you. He tastes death for you so you can be reconciled to God and giving everlasting life. This is what Luke, I, I really think this is what Luke wants his readers to see. I really think he wants you to follow the train of thought and go, well, hold on a second. So then if Jesus resurrects and appears to you, will you believe in him? I think that's where he wants to go. I mean, if Jesus happens to resurrect himself from the dead and appears to my five brothers, will they then believe in him? No. No. They may be stunned to death at the proof of a resurrection, but they will not be stunned out of their sin. They'll just marvel. They'll just be wowed. Some of us are like the rich man and his brothers, right? You want everything but the truth of scriptures. I say this lovingly. I say this as your friend. I say this as a pastor. You want everything but what's inside here. So until somebody gives you counsel or tells you something else outside of this, you don't really want to hear it. If you're honest with yourself, you don't have ears to hear, even though you claim that you want ears to hear. And he's giving you the scriptures this morning. He loves you enough to speak the truth to your heart this morning. Do not overlook Jesus. Start with him. Look at him. Consider him. The only one who can take your place as a substitute, slaughtered for your sin, taking the full weight and wrath of God, burying it and rising again, validating he did it to indwell you with his Holy Spirit, create you in a new way as a son and daughter adopted in the family of God, given eternal life, not eternal death. He tastes eternal death for you in the cross of Christ. He takes hell for you in the cross of Christ. How kind is God? How merciful is God? I think I've told this story before um, with just the, this, this understanding. I mean, a number of uh, years ago, I was teaching at a summer camp, and there was a kid reading the Da Vinci Code. And he was a kid that, that grew up in the church, I thought might love Jesus, thought he was maybe a Christian, and he basically came to me on one of those midweek days, and he said, hey, Mike, the Da Vinci Code has proved to me that all the things that you're teaching about Jesus in the Bible are not true. Therefore, I refuse to believe in a resurrected Jesus, blah, 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 blah. To which I just said, okay, that's interesting. So what would it take then for you to believe that he's really who he says he is? No, you just have to prove it. Okay. All right, so I walk you through textual criticism, historical accounts, Dead Sea Scrolls. 
I do everything. I show you how everything we have in here is absolutely reason to believe. It's fully authoritative. It's fully eyewitness. It's fully from God without error. But let's say I do that for you. Will you really then believe in Jesus? Or then say, well, the gospel of Judas or the gospel of Thomas. You show okay, so then we take the gospel of Thomas, gospel of Judas, and I show you how all those are with there. I'll show you how none of them line up in the testimony, the consistent testimony of the scriptures. We walk through every last controversial, challenging text with you, and I show you and roll out for you with verifiable evidence and helpfulness that this is absolutely trustworthy. Would you really believe in Jesus? Or, well, it's all the hypocrites in the church. You know, it's all the hypocrites. They all claim to love Jesus and they don't. Okay, so we get rid of all the hypocrites in the church. You're the only one that shows up. Would you then believe in Jesus? Or would you then just keep moving on to something else? And he looked at me and said, I'd probably move on to something else. I'd probably keep moving on to something else. The fact that he was so honest and aware enough to know the ache and angst in his human heart to say, What I want to be resolved is never going to be resolved unless I confront myself with the truth of what's in here. Brothers and sisters, God has given us the scriptures so that we might know all that we need to know about life, godliness, eternity, the nature and character of God. He does not tell us everything, for that is inexhaustible, but he gives us all that we must and need to know. That's why John 3 will say, Whoever believes in the Son of God has life. Whoever does not, the wrath of God, what, remains on him. Colossians 3 says, in the sin that we once walked in, the wrath of God was towards us in that sinful state. Guys, I don't know a topic more avoided than the wrath of God. I really don't. I mean, in, in all the things, I don't know a subject that's more avoided as the wrath of God. Everybody just loves Easter Bunny Jesus. He puts presents on your lawn and lets you sit on his lap. It's like, that's all we want. We never want any aggression. We never want any justice. We never want any ferocious holiness. We don't want that. We just want him to give us a side hug, and we want to give Jesus a makeover. And listen, I'm just going to tell you, as we land the plane, you do just a word study on wrath. Just do a quick word study. You're going to see it roll out in two ways, passive and active. Right, the active wrath is you know God bringing fire from the heavens, right? Disease, illness, right? Nebuchadnezzar turning into like an animal for a couple of years. Then you've got the passive wrath of God, which I think is terrifying, which I see over and over in today, which is outlined in Romans one, where we say, "I want to be God. I'm smarter than Him, even though I flunked first grade. I know how to do my life. I know how to run things. I know how to operate. You have no right to tell me what to do." And God says, "Okay," and He just lets you chase it. He lets you go. How terrifying. Some who might never turn and repent back to his name. Says, okay. Sometimes it's a good thing to be woken up by God. Sometimes it's good to walk in and hear a sermon on hell. Sometimes it's good for Jesus to lovingly, compassionately, humbly lay before us the truth of the scriptures to say, hey, here's what's going on. Here's what's happening. So could I encourage us? The scriptures tell us that if you're in Christ, 1 Thessalonians and other places, if you are in Christ, you're no longer under wrath, but under mercy, there's an exchange that happens. And you do not have to walk under wrath, you can walk under mercy. And then all that God does towards you and for you is not punitive, it is gracious, it's formidable. It's to grow you up in the image of the Son. It's to lead you in the deepest of life and profoundest of meaning and understanding of who he is and what he's done. And all of a sudden, everything you enter into is you're walking in it in the ways that God has wired you to walk in it. 
That's what happens in conversion. So you're now a spoon that's operating like a spoon should. That's why some of you guys have constant angst because God made you and you're trying to use a spoon to pick up steak. It's rolling off the plate. God has wired and fashioned us specifically to operate in a way, and that's namely to worship his name. And when we worship his name and are found in his supreme glory and all of his worth, we find greatest joy, greatest life, greatest pleasure. And that's throughout the book, throughout the scriptures. And so the scriptures say you can trust in the one who absorbed wrath and tasted death so you could be free. You can enjoy delight in the richest affair that is Jesus Christ. You do not have to fear death. You do not have to fear hell. You do not have to fear torment. You do not have to fear anguish. Christ is available, and he would say, and John the Baptist would say, repent for the forgiveness of sin. Repent for your belittlement of his name. It doesn't change the truth of what will happen. Some of you in this room, you can do that this morning. You've been running, you've been rebelling, you've been suppressing the truth. Ask God, say, God, open my ears, open my heart, open my mind to the truth of the scriptures. Help me to see it and know it and believe in it in a saving way. Help me to trust you as Savior. Help me to see the ransom you paid for me. Help me to believe that you've given me all I need to know. Help me see that this morning, part of your kindness might be putting you in this room and calling you to himself just by giving you the scriptures. Because Jesus would say through Abraham, this is all you need to know, to know all that there is for life, godliness, and salvation. Let's find it this morning. God, thank you that you are a God that saves, that you're a God that delights in rescuing sinners. It is a mind-blowing truth, mind-blowing reality. But Father, we need your help. We can't decide to love you like this. You have to help us. Your Holy Spirit has to stir in us, has to give us eyes to see who you really are and what our sin is really like. I pray that we might repent of belittling your name. I pray that some of us might repent of being indifferent. I pray that you and your grace would allow us to walk and feel the weight of eternity. Father, would you save some this morning? God, would you save some this morning? Lord, you know hearts. I know no hearts. I know no minds. But God, you call through your scriptures. You say in Romans that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. So, Father, we are hearing the word of God this morning. Might we hear you say, you have all that you need to know. I've given you today all that you need to know. I thank you for your grace. Thank you for your broken body, shed blood, that we will see and remember and savor and be nourished by in the Lord's Supper. And then might we praise your name because of what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.